Hey guys, we felt like we needed to put a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode. First of all, it's long. We edited as much as possible without misrepresenting the interview. Second, there are a lot of inappropriate topics that we address due to equally inappropriate IFB positions on these issues. Third, we allow our guest to lay out his position on some issues while many of them are heartbreaking, disgusting, and do not represent the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe these positions will serve to highlight the dangers of the IFB, and we try to answer them from a biblical position. Fourth, we treat our guest with respect, even though we strongly disagree with him on many issues, and we believe that he is an image bearer of God who has human dignity and deserves to be treated with respect, even though he may not treat others with equal respect. Thank you for listening. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. And uh, hey, we want to thank our sponsor, J Radio. J Radio is an online music platform, and uh, they have all kinds of music. You can go to jradio.com and find a playlist that fits the mood that you're in. If it's classical, if it's hard rock, if it's Brian's favorite reggae. Buffalo soldier, dread like a rasta. You got to love reggae, man. Every little thing <laughs> is going to be all right. Hey, uh, Jimmy Buffett's new album comes out on May the 19th. Just thought I'd let you know. Excited about You know, about I don't that. know that I've ever listened to a Jimmy Buffett song all the way through. What? Mm-hmm. But <laughs> you can go to jradio.com and hear all kinds of platforms. You can download it on your iTunes or Google Play Music. And it's J Radio, a sponsor of the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Y'all ready to go? Let's Absolutely. Go. Let's go. You know what makes women stupid is college. Jesus was not a bartender. Hi, man. Two. You have lost your mind. Long tongue heifers have given me a lot more trouble than heifers wearing breeches. And you know that. Say amen right there. One. Let me tell you something, bozo. They'll be selling frosties in hell for this boy. Put on a pair of pink underwear. Amen. I sucked my thumb till I was 14 years of age. All right. Welcome to the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast. We are glad you are here with us today. We're your hosts. I'm JC. This is Nathan and Brian. Fellas, good to see you. Man, it's good to see you. That that intro never gets old. I love that so much. If I have to be honest, I've listened to it over and over <laughs> and over again. I love it. Is it is straight gold. It makes me smile ear to ear every single time I hear it. I love it. You know, we've thrown around the idea of, of changing it up and adding some different things in there because we've got a lot of freedom, but it's so good. I just don't want to mess with it. Solid gold. Hey, man. <laughs> I absolutely <laughs> love it. I love the little time. I sucked my thumb till I was 14 years old. <laughs> and, oh, goodness gracious. Hey, by the Guys, way, you said at one point in time you were going to give away a free T-shirt, I think it was, to whoever guessed who that was. Did anybody ever guess who it was? They did. I don't think – who was it? Do you remember? No, but I don't. Uh, we need to find out if we ever sent him a T-shirt because I remember him messaging us. Well, let's do this. <laughs> I got an. I got a better idea, and and y'all tell me what you think about this. We'll do some. We'll do a business meeting on the on the episode. Um, this is our tenth episode. 
we've made it to 10 episodes with wow. some recovering with some RFP oh, extras thrown in there. But we're 10 episodes in. What if we do a special 10 episodes in $10 t-shirts? We take $5 off Ooh. for everybody to get a RFP t-shirt. Absolutely. Like yeah. All let's, right. Let's do that. So go to recoveringfundamentalist.org, click on the t-shirt link and Justin Knight, our incredible website guy, will put it up there and uh, you can get a $10 t-shirt until mm. the next episode comes out. For the next week, you can go on, get a $10 t-shirt and uh, support RFP. And the cool thing is you can get that baby while in quarantine. I mean, you don't For have sure. to go anywhere. You don't have to put on a mask, not unless you're afraid of yourself. And you can get an RFP t-shirt, man. That is awesome. I'm just happy that the sun is out and it's hot and I'm able to mow my yard and get out and actually get burnt. So we've been doing church in our backyard. Um, I've been inviting my neighbors over. I've said, hey, we can't meet, but I'm going to set a TV and a sound system up in my backyard. And so every Sunday we're sitting back there and my head gets fried on Sundays. And uh, it's awesome though. I had a neighbor, I am not even kidding, had a neighbor sitting on their back porch. I've got a big backyard and the, the houses behind us, they kind of face our backyard. And uh, we're sitting there right in the middle of church. I heard a dude crack open a cold one. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Homeboys <laughs> drinking a beer while watching church. Like I absolutely loved it. I thought it was, was really good. Nate, you've been back to church for the last couple of weeks. How's that been going? Yeah, this, this week is going to be our third week back. It's going really well. Our, uh, a lot of our people are still worried about coming back, so they're still at home streaming, but uh, a lot of people have come back to the church and are absolutely loving it. A lot more have said they're going to be here tomorrow, so man, it's been great. Last Sunday, I actually, as soon as church was over, got through preaching, me and my wife and kids got in the car, and we took my wife to the beach for Mother's Day. We drove to Gulf Shores, so my nice. forehead's still a little bit burnt, but we got down there, got two days on the beach, got to eat some seafood, got to see some family, and then came back on Tuesday. So I'm enjoying the weather as well. That's awesome. Tomorrow will be our first day back in eight weeks. Wow. We've been doing so much planning. And, uh, I mean, I think we're basically going to hose everybody off with hand sanitizer, wrap them up <laughs> like a mummy. I don't know what's coming tomorrow, but it's going to be it's going to be interesting. But, you know, when you've got hundreds and hundreds of people coming into one spot, yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of fear around, you know, so – I'm excited. It was weird stopping having services. And now it feels odd knowing that tomorrow we finally get to meet in person, but I'm excited. Yeah. Brian, I know you really well, and I guarantee you're, you're just going to stay up all night at church. You're not going to be able to sleep. You're so excited about tomorrow. Oh man, I am thrilled. You know, years ago, <laughs> I heard this joke said this guy came up to the pastor at the close of a service and the pastor kept on saying, you know, during the service, he said, I'm a pig farmer. You know, I have, I have pigs. And he said, if I, if I holler and, you know, a pig, hold it. I think I forgot the joke. <laughs> <laughs> if you no, think no. I'm going to edit that out, you're crazy. No, no, no. No, that's, no, <laughs> no, that's going to be edited out. I, love I it. hadn't planned okay. on telling that joke. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. And, yeah, I can't wait. I, I think I'm just going to open up the biggest can of preach I've ever opened up in my life. I think it's going to be scary for the people who are sitting in the seats tomorrow. I'm going to pour it all out. I didn't know where you were going right there, brother. I did not know where you were going. Hey, I love oh, Jesus, man. man. <laughs> Looks like we're at, so we're moving into a new building uh, here at Rockbridge and uh, we've got a lot of exciting stuff. I just sent out a text to our group page. I was like, I miss y'all because we, we, it's like a new day for us. We've got a brand new student pastor coming on, a brand new worship leader for our student ministry. We've got a new building. Like we're using this as kind of like a relaunch, but 
you know, we have a lot of people that are attending and, and we're just taking it as slow as possible because there's a church here in Catoosa County that is shut down again for a month because there's some number that I don't even know. And I don't want to say on the, on the episode, but at the church, a lot of people, because they've been meeting for three weeks, were exposed to four or five people that are positive for it. And so they've shut the church down for a month and said they're not allowed to have church for a month. And so that, that happened right here in Catoose County. So that kind of adds fear, you know, on top of a lot of the, the hysteria that's going around, because let's be honest, we don't know what's real, what's fake. Um, there's a lot of stuff and I, to the point where I posted on social media today, hey, here's some social media posting guidelines. Make sure you fact check before you post it. Make sure the date, because some people are sharing stuff from like the end of you know, February. And I'm like, come on, that was February. We're in May now, you know, and that's just, that's a good rule of thumb just to think before you post. So speaking of posting, man, I am super excited about our, uh, our podcast today, our episode today. I have been looking forward to this episode for some time. Uh, we have a guest with us today that if you're on Twitter, uh, I'm sure you've seen a lot of his uh, clips that are on there. Um, this guy uh, is down in Tampa, and uh, he is a pastor. And uh, we reached out to him. And, and let's be honest, we've reached out to a lot of guys because we say on the podcast that we want to help, challenge, and encourage. We're not just about getting folks that are yes men that agree with what where we're at or the stance that we take. We want folks that have a different opinion. And we have reached out to a lot of guys in the IFB world. And Nathan Rager is one of the only ones who has said yes that he would come on. And uh, we're excited to have him. Nathan, welcome to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast, man. It's good to have you on here. Hey, it's good to be here. Uh, I feel like I'm looking in a reverse mirror with y'all. Uh, this is an interesting <laughs> journey, isn't it? And that's what I love. And what we want to do right off the bat is just anybody that comes on the the podcast, we we want to hear their history. And so we would love for you to take us back to Nathan Ranger when he gave his life to Jesus, what that was like, you know, where you went to college, how, you, you know, where you grew up, just your story, because you're not a recovering fundamentalist. You told me on Twix that you're a recovering evangelical. So we are literally in opposite right there. I think Nathan said it best. What were you telling me earlier before we got on the episode, Nathan? Yeah, I think this is awesome that we have this interview because we have asked a lot of people to do this and they've refused or just didn't answer us back. But Nathan, we appreciate you being willing to do this, especially since we're on opposite ends of the spectrum. But I think it's healthy to have a respectful conversation and talk these things out. And I think a lot of people are going to respect you a lot more for coming on here. And hey, it takes a lot of courage. But uh, I think you saw before that we're not out to get anybody. We just want to have a conversation and we real excited about hearing where you came from and how you got to where you're at now. So share your journey with us. Okay, sh sure. So yes, uh, I was originally born in the Appalachian Mountains of Pennsylvania of German Anabaptist and Ulster Scott stock. My ancestors, every man in my family that joined the U.S. Army or became a German Baptist preacher. I'm like fifth, sixth, maybe even seventh generation, we're not quite sure. I'm just at least fifth from what we can trace. Uh, so anyway, that being said, uh, they became the Church of the Brethren. And uh, in when I was either six years old, probably six, but maybe seven years old, I was at summer camp, and there was a, a Christian punk rocker there who brought in chick tracks, right? Chick tracks. <laughs> yes. And I didn't know what they were at the time. I believed the, the history of Jesus, but nobody ever 
had the gumption to tell me about hell, right? So here comes this strange bird in. He understood salvation was by grace through faith. He understood everybody deserved to go to hell. So why not say it, even to a six-year-old, right? Uh, it's like talking about making the difference. Some by kindness, some being pulled from the fire. So I didn't want to go to hell. I got saved that day. It was probably six years old. So anyway, after that, I had never really lived for God. I was always in and out of church. And uh, I had never gotten really under convicting preaching, never felt moved in my Bible study. But I wound up going to Liberty University when I was 18. Well, I moved to Florida as a kid and then went to Liberty University uh, when I was 18 years old. And I never got teachings about eternal security. So I didn't even know how to answer and answer the question when I got saved. It was like, because I thought I had to keep getting saved again because nobody ever taught me good doctrine, right? I mean, that's why I always get so worked up about little sermonettes for Christianettes dressed up like majorettes puffing cigarettes. Is because <laughs> you shouldn't have to go to Bible college to get eternal security, okay? I mean, you can like that, lump that, or take it across the street and dump it, but you're not doing anybody <laughs> any favors, you know, by having a sweet little cup of coffee and... I mean, it's not good. People shouldn't be getting saved again every time the altar call uh, from a hellfire and damnation evangelist comes in. Amen. Hey, man. Right. So, and Liberty really didn't do anything for me there either. But I went up there as a government major because uh, I wanted, honestly, I went up because I wanted to meet Jesse Helms. And he was dropping a bunch of money to have the school of government named after him. So I was there for a cup of coffee. Uh, and or more, or more like a cup of chewing tobacco. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> coffee yet. Uh, I still was chewing until I was 21. But anyway, was spending most of my time doing political work. Wound up moving to Alabama and working there for a while. Got made an Alabama colonel. Uh, that was that was an interesting story. I I'm, I, I call myself the uh, the Clinton pardon of Southern gentility because the governor about three hours later after he made me a colonel resigned in disgrace <laughs> <laughs> true story look up robert bentley it was I, I even have the postage stamp to prove my my point there but anyway so uh anyway i wound up getting laid off from a job in 2014 i was 28 years old and it was right at the time that ian paisley had died right and again, I want to stress this. I had never gotten under conviction under preaching. I had never been moved in my Bible reading. So I got under his preaching. Man, he preached the devil out of me. And I do believe that there is a big difference between Baptist eternal security uh, versus Calvinist uh, perseverance of the saints. Because there's what is the faith? How far do you take faith alone? But the old vine fundamentalists, as opposed to the modern Calvinists, I think the old vine fundamentalists had more of an independent fundamental Baptist understanding on their interpretation of perseverance of the saints. And that really helped me out a lot. And I started getting into the King James. And it was one of those deals where when I was reading the modern perversions, I could understand it, but I couldn't feel it. When I was reading the King James, I couldn't understand it, but I could feel it. And so I wind up uh, getting into my, grandma, my great grandma's King James, where 
where it has the little stars where it says like the word rot is works or uh, different, those sort of archaic words. So you didn't have to consult a dictionary for every four verses, right? And it really <laughs> helped me out a lot and started getting under hard preaching, getting convicted. And I didn't really realize that there was a difference between uh, eternal security and perseverance of the saints until I was, uh, well, and I, I answered the call to preach at that time and uh, wound up at a Southern, wound up serving and getting licensed by two Southern Baptist churches who had gone back into the convention after the conservative resurgence in the 80s or early 90s. Uh, but anyway, so what wound up happening with that was I wound up going to a Calvinist church and preaching, and I preached about in First John where he talks about the uh, Christians committing sins unto death, right? And uh, apparently that that went over like a that went over like passing gas in church, and so I really started studying. <laughs> and I mean, I don't want to I don't want to uh, just dump on anybody as far as but I mean, they were good people. It was it was a doctrinal dispute. It wasn't a personal dispute at this Calvinist at this Presbyterian church that I had preached at this one time. But anyway, so that being said, I started getting out of Calvinism, but I still believed in fundamentalism. I had gotten into the King James only stuff through Ian Paisley, and I believed in the fundamental separation. In fact. Uh, my, I, I grew up hearing stories about how my great grandmother's brother, Wesley, who was a church of the brethren pastor had retired from the ministry because he wouldn't be a part of the national council of churches and how my grandpa's brother, uh, uncle Don was a pastor in the brethren, which is not the church of the brethren, which it turned out, uh, the brethren were the conservatives that split off in the fundamentalist modernist controversy. So the fundamentalist roots were there. Okay. I mean, from the chick tracks to the family background, it was all set up. And then, so in 2018, I went to the Southern Baptist convention in 2018. Hey, look, I'm not afraid to come on and talk to y'all because I went as a preacher who had preached uh, less than less than 10 full-length sermons in my entire life onto the convention floor to make a speech to defund the ERLC at the convention in 2018. Let me reread the amendment. This is what we're voting on. Nathan Rager, I believe that's the name there, Rager, messenger from People's Church in Clearwater, Florida, moves that the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting in Dallas, Texas, June the 12th and 13th, 2018. Amend its annual budget to fully and completely defund the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the ERLC, and that all funds that were previously allocated to the ERLC be redirected to the Soul Winning International Missions Board entity of the Southern Baptist Convention. Just to let you know what we're voting on. And anyway, so what wound up happening was we thought that we were going to get about 10, 20 percent because that, from what I was told by some people higher up, who had had some high positions, that that's usually how it went when they tried to pull out of uh, some ecumenical Baptist fellowship years ago. But then, of course, Richard Land got up and made a speech, which really got everybody to vote against it. But then the next day, uh, we, we figured out how to get control of the microphones and the Q&As uh, for the entity, <laughs> right? 
So I go up there and uh, I got a, a, a fact sheet from uh, Thomas Littleton uh, from 30piecesofsilver.com on how the ERLC had been working with some sodomite groups and how their, uh, their fellows, particularly Karen Swallow Pryor, had been supporting the Revoice Conference that, quote, uh, was set up to, uh, to celebrate queer culture in the plight of LGBT Christians. And that was just awful. So anyway, I did this with the support of uh, one of the two, ch with both churches that licensed me. But anyway, th for things I can't go into, uh, Russell Moore, when this was exposed, his position actually got stronger. But Al Mahler was really the one with his back up against the wall because he falsely has that conservative reputation. And through some national politics in the convention, local politics in the convention, it became kind of problematic for one of the churches that I was involved with. And uh, the other church basically had noticed I had conducted myself with a lot of integrity, despite the fact that I was egged on to do this <laughs> and such. And, and it really wound up coming back on me, despite all, despite me going above and beyond to be above board with it. So uh, after, you know, trying to get me into some different churches and things uh, and me having issues with NIV and the use of Hillsong music, and I just couldn't raise my kid around that even though I was told, look, you know, this pastor's going to retire in two years. Just try it out. I, I, I'm in there. Like, no, 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 no. I mean, because I was, I was gung-ho for fundamentalism because when I was in Dallas, I went to the uh, courthouse in Fort Worth where J. Frank Norris was put on trial two times. Who mm -hmm. And he was picked out of the convention for opposing the modernists back in 19, I think, 22. So it was... I had, and, and I was given a book about John R. Rice, and I started getting into Jack Hiles preaching and, and Phil Kidd preaching and Tony Hudson preaching and Curtis Hudson preaching. And I'm like, oh, this go. is great. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm a little hard-headed, you know, but I grew up watching professional wrestling, right? So Woo! right here, <laughs> like regular, like MacArthur-style preaching. I don't understand the criticism that, that every IFB preacher imitates an IFB preacher because most, most evangelical preachers, they either imitate John MacArthur, Rick Warren, or uh, Matt Chandler, or Sproul. I mean, it's not a fair criticism. But anyway, <laughs> but that being said, I was into it. And uh, so anyway, because of that, I wound up getting sent out to plant a church. And I went and... Uh, God provided a space. It was in the largest Greek community outside of the Mediterranean, Tarpon Springs, Florida. And it was a disaster. I mean, the Greeks were super nice, but you couldn't, ex you couldn't explain uh, the, the, the sin nature to them. You couldn't explain the sin nature to them. So what wound up happening was it was a good learning experience because I learned soul winning. I learned business structure and it had been a long time since I had even preached a sermon. I had been going out and preaching like 10 minute salvation messages at nursing homes, trying to kind of loosen up and everything. And, and then, you know, so I had already had that notoriety. So when I got out on in the end of the church plant and business, uh, the heat was already on me from the convention stuff. And then I went to a Phil Kidd meeting about two weeks before we had the church opening, and he had shared a 
photo of us together where I thanked him for advising me and praying with me and everything. And so I inherited his trolls. And look, and it's one of those things where I've always heard uh, preachers talk about how there's, there's that like finding yourself period, right? There's that finding yourself period, getting comfortable behind the pulpit. And a lot of that, they were watching me sort of get comfortable behind the pulpit. And I was also taking a homiletics class with uh, Tony Hudson in my, uh, in my Bible college. And he's, he's a real smart fella. But what works in the Southern camp meeting setting doesn't work in an urban church setting, really. So as I evolved and grew, I found that more that I would really have to watch a lot more like Jack Hiles and Tom Malone and Curtis Hudson, because when you're in an urban setting, it just doesn't work with the camp meeting guys, but any, you know, I don't know the camp meeting style, but anyway, uh, so after all that, it just wasn't happening. And like the Bible says, Jesus said, if, if you're in a community and they don't accept you, dust off your feet, and move on to the next one which is what we did. We moved up to this little Leonard Skinner town a half hour north of there. God provided us a good space. And uh, I switched to an expository preaching style, verse by verse, precept by precept. And we are here. We've, we have the best, we have the most visible church in the community, big yellow sign on the main road and uh, we stayed open through the coronavirus because I just had this gut feeling like, you know, not like a charismatic sense. I got to prefix that. <laughs> it was a gut feeling. I voices like that before, okay? <laughs> but it, it, was, it was like, I just had this gut feeling like Jesus was going to build the church if I kept on keeping on, but I was going to be put out of the ministry if we closed. Hmm. So... This was even a challenge where I saw Rodney Howard Brown, the, the laughing revival heretic in Tampa, getting arrested in the next county down. And I'm just like, you know what? If I have to be arrested for this, so be it. But whatever. And, you know, the governor, he essentially took the bullet for me. The governor deemed that church is an essential service. And then it was right after that that, that God really, that God brought us a few new families and uh, we were just out. We had our uh, first opportunity to go soul winning where we were actually able to talk to people again today. And I don't believe in keeping track of numbers. If, if somebody else does, that's okay with me. Because Jesus said that we're supposed to go out house to house, into, out into the highways and byways, preach the gospel unto every creature. You don't really know if it's a true conversion, and our rewards are eternal. It's there. If, if you boast about it here, your rewards are here. Right. So, are they true converts? Some of them would be, some of them wouldn't be, uh, and then they may not even bear fruit for twenty years. I don't know. And and also, I don't want to name his name, but there's one fellow. I did the stats on his conversions, uh, and his church in Texas would have would have gotten everybody in his community saved about five or six times. <laughs> <laughs> so I just was like, uh, we got one of those here in Chattanooga. <laughs> but so that's kind of where we're at. So things are, things are good. Things are working out. And it's, uh, and then of course we bypassed the deputation process because it was like, why travel the country begging for money for two years when you can just go out now? 
And, and do you really want to train the next generation of preachers by traveling the country, trying to get people to like you? I mean, this is such a fundy thing to say, but it's, it's <laughs> for some reason, there's like a cognitive dissonance in the deputation process versus the concept of hard preaching. I don't get it. Now, are you, are you on, um, like, do churches sponsor you, or do you have a job and pastoring is, are you bivocational, or is this your full-time I am job? bivocational, yes. It's, it's like it talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where we were just worked through. Apostle Paul was bivocational, and now yeah. it, it, a pastor is entitled to a salary, uh, just like the Old Testament priests were, but at the same time, he never took it when he was doing small church plants for an extended period of time. He didn't take it when there was a trust vacuum. And then the Bible also says that God gives, uh, I don't have the, I, I didn't memorize when I was young, so pardon me, I only have the gift of paraphrase. Uh, he gave some, say some pastors, some evangelists, some prophets as, as an ensample. So how can I ask a congregation to go soul winning when they're paying me uh, to pastor a small brand new church? It's ridiculous. Hey, by the way, a minute ago, I appreciate you not calling the guy in Texas name. Yeah. I'll just say this. His numbers are a little gray. <laughs> <laughs> you know it. You know it. You nailed it. Nathan, I like you, yeah. man. You're, this is going to be a fun. This is a fun interview. I'm, I'm thankful that you're well, on here. I'll say this. If you want to name the name, go ahead, because the fact that he endorsed uh, that, that, uh, that Born That Way Ministries, look, I got run out of the convention over stuff like that. And the idea of mainstream IFB and the Hiles wing of all places accepting that same kind of garbage as Revoice, no, no. You, you, we can go ahead and name that name. The only reason I didn't say it is because he's got a good family who are faithfully served, and that's the only reason I didn't say it. Well, I didn't say it either. I just said his numbers were a little gray. Of course. <laughs> hey, speaking of family, speaking of family, you married? You got kids? Yeah, I'm married. I uh, got married in uh, 2014. Uh, the Lord gave us a child in 2018, uh, trusting in God for more, uh, but the Bible says about the qualifications of a pastor, husband of one wife, uh, children in subjection. So it's sort of ironic the way God think, worked things out that I wouldn't be uh, in, in uh, a pastorate until I had that child. That's just, that's just like a proof of the calling, isn't it? I mean, where people were trying to place me in churches, you know, uh, just out of, you know, before we had the kid. And then, and then the baby comes, and then is when it happened. It's, it's amazing how things work. I, be, I, don't, I don't believe, I'm not, I'm not one of those that believes that your feeling of a God call uh, defies what the Bible says the qualifications are. Can I ask one question? Sure. Where did Tony Hudson preach or teach homiletics? Gethsemane Bible Institute uh, in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. Uh, they bring in, they bring him in from time to time to do some intensives and he's, and he, I'll say this, he, he does get a bad rap because all the stuff that's out there, a video of his is his preaching the conferences or the revival meetings. There's a difference between pastor in a church and preaching revival meetings. And he says he, he preaches verse by verse at his church. 
but he, he also says that he will kick people out of the church if they record the preaching in his church. Well, we, we got a clip that you were talking about your homo, homiletics and exegesis. <laughs> Bless God. So if you think of all the theologians out there, you know, theologian, you know, they, uh, you know they, they talk about their hermeneutics and they talk about their exegitis. Sounds like a bunch of diseases, hermeneutics and exegitis. Sound, I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't even believe in vaccines, but I want one after hearing that junk. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I love that. I have listened to that a thousand times. What was the context of your sermon when that got thrown in there? Do you uh, remember? We were, we were the, the, I was preaching about, you know where it talks in, uh, is it 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 15 about the gospel? And you're saved by this unless you believe in vain. So I was talking about what it means to believe in vain, you know, uh, because it's sort of a passing mention. But it's like, what exactly are the different ways that you can believe in the historical facts of the gospel, but not have a saving faith? And I did an intro with a word study on the meaning of the word vain. And one of the meanings was just empty. Uh, and, I, and I was talking about vanity, and, and anytime you deal with the general public, I know, I know a lot of these young Bible college, seminary students, young preacher boys imitate, who don't know how to preach because they imitate their, their lecturer, they'll go off and they'll start talking in these big four, five, six syllable words, look, I know what they mean. But it sounds so ridiculous. I mean, the word hermeneutic and exegesis, it's like they do. They sound like diseases. How is the general public going to react to you talking like that to them? It's like Apostle Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 2. He was in Athens talking to all these puffed up, uh, pompous jackasses, you know, who <laughs> think themselves to be wise, reveal themselves to be fools. And I mean... Are you really glorifying God or are you glorifying yourself by using these big terms? And it just got under my crawl where James White said that independent fundamental Baptists do not engage in the public square and that we couldn't engage in the public square. Look, this man spent, he, it's weird, he operates in a realm of his own where the reason he has such a heretical view of uh, textual criticism and the and the most highest blasphemous form of determinism is because he operates in a world of modernists and unbelievers but tries to hold on to orthodoxy so he ends up accepting all of their presuppositions and it forces him to basically believe weird things like we go out there and we we talk to people Jesus said, if he's lifted up, he'll draw all men unto him. He right. was lifted up. So he does draw all men unto him at some point in their lives. And we go out, and, and if God's drawn somebody at that moment, we, we give the gospel to them. If not, you know, we plant seeds and hope God draws them later and somebody else can water it. But that yeah. being said, you, there's no possible way that you can communicate with and reach normal people by going up and talking to them about the hermeneutic of the Romans road or 
hey, would you mind if I give you my exegesis of the book of Romans? No. <laughs> hey, uh, do you have a few minutes that I can show you what the Bible says about how you can know 100% for sure that if you were to meet God today that you would go to heaven? I mean, it's just common sense. It's vanity to talk like that. And Apostle Paul could have talked that way when he went to Corinth, but he's like, why? Uh, it, it, it doesn't profit. I mean, I want to I glorify God, not myself, and just keep it where everybody can get it. I gave you milk because you weren't ready for me. Nathan, I hear what you're saying, man. I'm a, personally, I'm a theology nerd and love talking theology, love what Nathan's trying to say is he loves to pontificate on an esoteric theory to the point that nobody has a clue what he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> Something right. like I, that. I mispronounce these things on purpose. But I get what you're saying when you're talking to people. There's a point where you, you're trying to make yourself sound smarter and you care less about sharing the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and in power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So I, I agree with you a hundred percent on that, but I do believe that theology underlies what we share with people, but the job of a pastor, the job of a teacher, the job of a soul winner is to take these high lofty ideas and right. talk about them and talk about scripture in a way that the common man can understand them. So yeah, I'm, right. I'm with you a hundred percent on that. Right, and that's something in independent fundamental Baptist circles where I'd love to see us get back to this because that was really what brought the independent fundamental Baptist movement to the dance was, you know, a great Bible, I don't want to use the word expositors, but great Bible preachers who just dove into the text and got everything out of it, like John R. Rice, Oliver B. Green, Harold Seitler, and I know there's still people doing that at the local level, uh, but it's, it, it is something I think we should certainly strive for. The circumstances going on right now are the same exact conditions as the circumstances going on when J. Frank Norris was put out of the Southern Baptist Convention in the 1920s, even down to the Depression thing. Instead of focus on, on just idolizing the men of old and lamenting that things aren't like they used to be because things aren't going to be like they used to be. We're probably going to have a lot. We could have a lot of small fundamental churches. We're not going to have the big pile sized churches anymore. But that being said, you know, just focus on preaching the Bible, focus on winning souls. And I mean, even J.D. Greer, the president of the convention has said evolution versus creationism is a, is a, tertiary third tier issue now i mean we're literally right back to where it was in the 1920s and the ifb is prepared to walk through that door and and i think we're in a good position to do it i think a lot and because we're independent it's not a movement we're independent so some of us will walk through that door but it's like if we don't do it uh, to some extent you know, like y'all are a part of the split within the independent fundamental Baptist movement that came after the death of John R. Rice that went off sort of into the independent community Bible church movement. And uh, we can talk about that because somebody's going to walk through that door and be the opposition. And that's, that's all I got to say about that. So my confusion is when I hear you say that the independent Baptists are prepared or ready to walk through that door. Some um, are. 
apparently, you know, you and I view fundamentalist preaching completely different because, you know, I was brought up on that my whole life, heard mm -hmm. so much of it that, I mean, there'd be no way for me to even describe how many hours and hours and hours yeah. of preaching I heard while growing up. But I've heard you already, you know, reference like the name Hiles, maybe at least five times. My question is, how can you have a favorable view of fundamentalism when you realize what we now call modern fundamentalism was a movement greatly fueled by the man Jack Howes? How, how, do you, how do you mention his name like that, knowing all of the things that have now been revealed about who he was and even about those in his inner circle, whether we want to talk about you know, his own issues with, with other women, with power, with the way he would cause a crowd to, you know, just basically be moved to a frenzy. Um, and then, you know, Dave, his son, and then his own daughter coming out and giving testimony to what real life was like. It really confuses me, Nathan, because, you know, there's a part of you, you're a really articulate guy. And, and JC's already said, you know, you're very likable. I just have issue with how, how do you draw from names like that? How do you draw from a movement like that and see the man-centeredness and, and the lack of, of what I would call true biblical exposition? How, how do you draw from that movement and say, I'm going to reference this name, and by the way, I believe this is the movement to step through that door? Jack Hiles and Curtis Hudson were great biblical expositors. Now, Jack Hiles was a man who really got into topical preaching, so he, he would dive into do it one topic at a time, but he definitely was a great Bible teacher on doctrine. He believed in soul winning, and I want to stress this because, first off, my Bible says that an accusation against an elder, which is synonymous with a pastor, is to be established between two or three witnesses. And you can like this or you can lump this, but in, crim in criminal court, uh, the seemingly the only the only time perjury is not prosecuted is in divorce court. And in the, in, in First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana, had set aside thirty five thousand dollars in a savings account to collect interest to go into their secretary's uh, retirement account. And so, whenever uh, her husband in a divorce realized that he could get a payday he goes oh i have an idea i, I can i can say all these things and and it, it'll it that they have no way of disproving it that's what everybody's after pastors it's like look at you learn this from like even roy moore up in alabama when he was running for the senate one of those women who made those wild accusations against him accused pastors in Gadsden, Alabama, three separate pastors in Gadsden, Alabama, the same thing. Let me say this, Nathan. I do believe that happens sometimes where people are falsely accused, but let's, let's move on beyond uh, Hiles being accused of having an affair for years and years with the secretary and breaking up her marriage. What about Jack Hiles' son? What about the things that Hiles obviously covered over with the sexual abuse and hiding it and sending him to another church, covering it up, the suits that are coming out now. I mean, are you just saying that all of those are fabricated? The answer to that would be, I don't know. Now, remember, Jack Hiles, well, J. Frank Norris pastored mega churches, so I can't say Jack Hiles was the first mega church pastor. But 
he really innovated the, the church model where you have all different kinds of programs for all different walks of life, age groups, et cetera, et cetera. There was nothing, there was nothing in place to see what could go wrong in that kind of church model. There was But there's nothing. no way there's no way to justify your son sexually molesting a teenage girl in the youth group and to pay off her dad to keep it quiet and to send your son four states away to cover it up. And that's and documented. Way, His own our, family members. Did he really know that? And also just remember though, in the case of the daughter, I'll, I'll address the issue of the daughter because the daughter's made a pretty good living for herself uh, going out there acting like she survived a cult. And we see this all the time. You see this on with the Twitter trolls. Basically, every time somebody gets under conviction and has their feelings hurt, every time somebody loves their sin more than they love God, uh, they, they wind up going out of the church. They wind up, they wind up acting like, that they were the victims of all these horrible assaults of their emotions and their feelings, their trigger, their snowflakes, spiritual PTSD, they call it. And then they spend their lives projecting their imaginary emotional baggage onto men of God that they've never even met. Okay. And just to go further than that, uh, these people look, for any, any, any accusation. It's like, you know, look, Altoona, Pennsylvania was able to identify, I think over 10,000 Catholic priests who had molested children in just that general area. Whereas the Houston Chronicle, I think was able to identify six independent fundamental Baptist pastors who there was like any there there where there was substantiating evidence, okay? This was should, these, should these pastors be held accountable? When, when legitimate accusations are brought forward? I know yes, people that have been abused and molested. The Bible says that the law of the Lord is perfect, that no nation has ever had such a perfect law as God's law. You know, whenever they go, these people who are accused of this, if these accusations meet the criteria to go before a fair trial, and when there is a fair conviction, I'm going to go further than what the, the, the liberal Supreme Court and what the U.S. Constitution says. Mandatory execution for, for pedophiles, public executions. I mean, you didn't have these problems when you had public hangings and everybody could dress all up in their hanging clothes and go, hey, son, oh you see what happens when you do stuff like that? <laughs> Look, if someone is caught red-handed in the act, of molesting a child, they should die. Okay, so we knew, we knew the son personally. When the briefcase is dropped in the trash can at an airport, a member of the church sees it, thinks it's done accidentally. He retrieves the briefcase only to find all of the pictures and all of the despicable proof. And then your recommendation is to send him to another church states away. Um, you know, I, I the timeline, well, I thought the timeline was that there was some questionable accusations when he was in Indiana and then, you know, sort of, there wasn't really proof, but then it was after he was in Texas 
was when the was when the briefcase was actually exposed, and then he was put out of the ministry after that. that see, I thought that timeline. Well, see, my point would be this: if the foundation is broken, then the house is going to be broken. And you know, for example, we we can we can debate what House did, whether or not he did anything. I can say this: it's known that there was a door at the end of a hallway. He and his secretary had a shared office behind a locked door. Um, you know, the, the Bible says avoid the appearance of evil. So I think we can at least say that was an incredibly unwise decision. I and agree there, with you. Like, and, and, were, and that's the thing. And my takeaway from the Hiles thing is this, is that I don't believe that he had any way of knowing all the things that could go wrong from infiltrators, pet, uh, infiltrators who are either pedophiles or position seekers or false prophets uh, or, or scam artists uh, infiltrating. I don't think it was so uncharted that I don't think he was ready for all that. And my view is this. I mean, he was a safe man. He had, a, he had an orthodox uh, confession of faith. He was greatly used of God. The vast majority, well, all of his fruit was good, I believe. There were some infiltrators that had bad fruit, but, I mean, that was happening with the apostles. Their churches had infiltrators with bad fruit. So well, if, my, my takeaway would just be this. I think that we can learn a lot from what went wrong in that church model, and we, we can make precautions accordingly. And, see, you and I, where we would differ on this, greatly is I don't think anything went wrong. I think the man was wrong. The source was wrong. And my question is, how can you listen to him abuse scripture in this sermon? Who, who slayed these? And then of course he goes through this ridiculous list. I mean, that is such an abuse of scripture. How do we call him an expositor? How do we ever say he was an expositor? So let me ask you this, who do, who do you think some great preachers are? Like, like if Nathan Rager was going to have a top five, who would make the top five? Curtis Hudson, I would say, is the prince of preachers, okay? Uh, I, don't, I, I just think Curtis Hudson was the gold standard. He was so articulate. He was so eloquent. He was an unlearned man who trusted in God to learn his stuff. Uh, so Curtis Hudson's definitely one of them. Uh, I would certainly uh, put on that list Jack Hiles. And uh, I would say Phil Kidd, man, I've never been convicted of my sin like when I was listening to Phil Kidd. I mean, man, he, he, he's got the power of God on him. Uh, I, like, I like Tony Hudson's preaching. And I, I wish I could hear more of his stuff that he preaches at his church verse by verse. But, I, you know, he's a really good conference speaker. And there's a time and a place for that. And, you know, John Hamblin, I view him in the same way. I, I love his stuff. We are 1,000% bipolar opposites. <laughs> and I, like, you just yes. named my bottom five. <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm concerned about that because, you know, you've got Phil Kidd calling women fat, whores. I mean, the th he called me a faggot from the pulpit. Yeah, the th <laughs> Were the you things there? Hundred percent, dude. I want to interject something. 
I met him for the first time in June 2019. Uh, one of the nicest, most humble, kindest, most helpful men I've ever met in my life. I don't know exactly what he may have heard on the other side of that, this or that, but I will say this. He, he has really been used of God to build a church that brings in whores, uh, people who had murdered their children, abortion clinics, drug addicts, and he's preached the devil out of them. God's done great works in their life. And he, and he's a very, maybe he's changed. I, I would suggest listening to more of his recent preaching. No, thank you. <laughs> okay. The, thing, I, the things yeah. I've heard, the things I've heard from him years ago, the racist comments that I, I've heard some horrible things come out of his mouth. I, I would never listen to him again, but I have heard that in recent years, he's toned it down a lot, but I would just say that if he has toned it down, he's falling into the category of compromiser that he would call everybody else if he's toning it down. And if he hasn't toned it down, then he's, he's way out of bounds. He still preaches against whores and faggots. And to be fair, uh, I'm going to get a little biblical for a minute here. Uh, the word harlot and the word whore are biblical terms. And also, uh, you hear the word faggot and queer. Uh, if you'll turn your Bible to the book of Jude, in verse 7, it refers to uh, the false prophets who are given over to strange flesh. The word strange, a synonym of the word strange is queer. And also, it talks about that these people like Sodom and Gomorrah, that they have their destruction, that, that he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah as an example for people like them. And the word faggot is a British term referring to a bundle of sticks to be burned. And so if you look at Jude verse 7, the word faggot and queer are actually biblical concepts. I mean, I don't say it from my pulpit because I just stick to the word sodomite because it's something people understand. But I will defend another Bible preacher if they use those words because they are biblical concepts. So you just contradicted what you were talking about a minute ago where you don't use big words because it's going to turn people away or help them not know what the gospel says because we're pontificating on esoteric theories. But the word faggot and queer and calling them a sodomite, when you're using that language, they want nothing to do with you. They want nothing to do with Tampa Independent Baptist Church because of that language. So how do you balance the two between not saying big words that are going to confuse them like trinity just say trinity but yet you're calling them something that is very culturally very unacceptable okay so here let me let me explain i use the word sodomite because that's the biblical term the bible calls them sodomites so i call them sodomites okay i do not use the word faggots and queers in my pulpit because it's not a biblical term i'll defend another pastor for using those terms because it's a biblical concept i mean I, just because something is permissible doesn't mean it's profitable so i personally don't do it now but at the same time i, I, I will i will say this it's I, I do think it how can i put this there's we need to keep preaching against this stuff. Now, let me ask, and, you, let me ask you a question. Do, sure. do you believe that God can save a homosexual? Okay, so if you look at the, if you look at the flow of the text in Romans 1, uh, there is a point 
where they pass the point of no return. Look, I mean, somebody is, being a sodomite is unnatural, okay? Uh, and they're given over to that because they knew the truth of God, which is meaning that God was drawing them. They knew the truth, and they were under conviction. And so uh, they it's it and and so they turned the truth of God into a lie, and then. God, and then God gave them over to their vile affections, so it just started getting worse and worse. And then God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Reprobate is, is past the point of no return. They cannot be saved past that point. Now, there are people who, because of chemical attacks with estrogenics in the foods and the drinks, there are people who, because of media propaganda, or bullying, or child abuse, or molestation, who would be very confused, and would deal with those temptations out of confusion, and they're not actually reprobates, but there comes a point where if you hate God, and hatefully reject God, God's just gonna wash his hands of you, and you, like, you know, what, what you're gonna have the, that sensor, that regulator removed from you, and then after that, you're going to be one of those sodomites who goes out and has over 100 partners every year and just several pounds of dung every year, walks around uh, naked in front of children, kissing children. And it says those sodomites are given over to all unrighteousness. You, you want to know what that plus in LGBTQ plus stands for? It stands for pedophile because that's ultimately where it's going to end up. They wanted, civil unions weren't enough, so they wanted marriage. They got it. Then they got the trans agenda, you know, so now they're moving on to pedophilia. Even mainstream magazines are advocating for pedophilia now. Look at Europe. They've lowered the age of consent so they can have, they can molest children in Europe. It's straight out of hell. Let me, let me quote a verse to you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'm going to quote it out of the King James because I, I know, know that's, what, that's what you prefer. Man, it says, know, know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Mm -hmm. But... But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So you've got a list of sins there, which, by the way, from fornicators, which is heterosexual, which are fornicating, sleeping with multiple partners, which is our entire culture, which was me before I came to Christ, all the way to uh, idolaters, to uh, it, it does include homosexuality. But then it, the very next one is thieves covetous drunkards how do you put homosexuality at like being this ultimate sin that god can never forgive which obviously he does forgive it because it's they were listed the in this okay so first off homosexuality is not the ultimate sin that god can't forgive it's a symptom of committing the ultimate sin that God will not forgive. Now that I've just said, I've just I've just never heard a, an independent fundamental baptist preacher talk about fornicators in the same way that they talk about homosexuals. I've never heard them talk about thieves in the same way that they talk about homosexuals. I've never heard anybody gluttons. say that any, uh, yeah, gluttons, anybody that says any other person on this list, drunkards, 
that they are given over to a reprobate mind and cannot be forgiven. But this is a category that has been intentionally created by the independent fundamental Baptist movement to put them beyond God's grace. And I believe that's, that's heresy. And let's be honest, the, the, the whores that they're talking about, to add into this, the whores that they're talking about from the pulpit are whores because they're wearing pants. It's not because they're in the act of sex or fornication. It's because of the, the status that they have put out there where the, you know, you've got to be in a dress or culottes. And so these ladies are being called whores because they are wearing pants. I'll, I'll address that issue. We, I'll tell you what, let's go ahead and come back to the woman in pants issue because I might, I might knock your socks off on that. So let's deal with the socks. Can't wait. First. Can't wait. Right. <laughs> so, okay, so first off, now, the issue of 1 Corinthians 6, 9, if you look at the context, it's talking about how uh, even the least among the brethren, the most, the most non-account Christian is more qualified to judge a matter than the, the secular pagans in the, in the outside community. And also it says, so too were some of you. It doesn't mean that all y'all were given over to those things. Uh, like the whole world is. The next thing is that term abusers of yourselves with mankind, okay? So let's go ahead and dive in on that by first getting into the word effeminate. I've heard the explanation, and some of the modern perversions get off into this, and to say that, oh, well, it's referring to a sodomite and a catamite, which, which one was queering on top and which one was queering on the bottom. And God, it, God's not a pervert. He's not going to, my Bible says the words of the Lord are pure words and that he's going to preserve them forever. Okay. That's Psalm 12. And uh, that's a King James only favorite. But anyway, uh, so, so, it, okay. So he's not going to give a graphic pornographic description of queering. Okay. He's just not going to do that. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, I really hate to go back to the Greek here, but I will go ahead and do it because the people who always want to go back to the Greek don't like to go back to the Greek here because the word is, it's a, it's a compound word, man, bed. And the combination of those two terms appear nowhere else in Greek literature. It's used by Apostle Paul twice one in one of his letters to Timothy, and then the other one was there. And, I mean, it could have multiple meanings. It could refer to, you know, if it could, you know, if a, uh, it could refer to a male prostitute. It could refer to a nymphomaniac. Uh, it could refer to a, a, a male harlot. It could refer to a sex addict. It could refer to someone who cohabitates. It could refer to a swinger. It could refer to all kinds of perverted, disgusting things. So my, okay, so I, I'm not a high, I'm not an ultra dispensationalist, okay? I believe in interpreting the Bible by what, what's not clear, by what's clearly stated. We can't always understand everything, but we can know what it doesn't mean by judging what is clear. And I'm not going to just dispensationalize away what I don't understand. And what we see here is clear scripture tells us that these most depraved sodomites that are given over to a reprobate mind are past the point of no return. So what could these things mean? We don't know exactly what the term means, but we do, we have something to work off of there. So, so here's my question then. 
Romans chapter 1, this is more approaching how this subject is dealt with. And we started down this, this pig path, you know, talking about what I consider crass language from the pulpit. But in Romans chapter 1, typically the sin you hear called out, of course, is same-sex relationships. Of course, the chapter ends with, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faultless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And so it goes on with this this incredible list of, of very dark behaviors. The thing that really takes me, um, I guess, back is you never hear anyone address Romans chapter two, because, you know, when the Bible was written, there weren't chapters and verses, right? So this would have been one continual letter. So the word chapter two begins with the word, therefore, anytime you see the word, therefore, you need to know what the word, therefore is there for. So right. you have to look back. So in light of that list, Romans chapter two says, therefore you have no excuse. Oh man, every one of you, who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The thing that really concerns me and the way this is addressed is not calling sin, sin, but it's, it's preached in such a judgmental, condescending way. Do we believe that God is capable of being God? I think that, for me, is the heart of the issue. Do we believe that God is capable? Because here's the thing. God names everything that exists in Romans chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he says, You be you, and let me be God. And when you try to play my role, when you try to do my job for me, then you're guilty. And so what I grew up hearing and what I still hear, by the way, um, Phil Kidd hasn't toned it down in recent sermons. His language is just as crass as it's ever been. The way I heard these sermons delivered was in a very condescending, judgmental, really angry way. And here's the thing. You know, gossips is mentioned in that list. Why do we make them deacons and choir members? And yet we're going to call out, you know, this this other group in this particular, uh, in, uh, who are indulging in this particular sin. Uh, I just have serious issue with the way it's presented. I think we could talk about this all day. We've spent quite a bit of time on it. I was wanting to ask you, Nathan, about a couple of the things. I, I shared on a previous episode some of the reasons why I'm not a fundamentalist. And I still, I want to clarify, I still believe the fundamentals of the faith, which, you know, the five fundamentals that sparked we the whole fundamentalist movement. We all do. We all affirm those. We all actually affirm a whole lot more than that because those are really a very small uh, sliver of what Christians believe, even Orthodox uh, Christians. But I just want to throw some of these things out there. I've basically boiled all of the reasons why I'm not a fundamentalist down and why I walked away from the IFB movement to three things, and I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to a few of these. Uh, number one, the reason I'm not a fundamentalist is because of focus. I believe that the fundamentalist movement is by large not gospel-centered, 
they are more about preaching opinions, standards, preferences, and performance. So could you speak into that? It is the fundamentalism that you see and that you want to be focused on the gospel, or is it more focused on outward appearance and man-made standards? Okay, so first off, uh, application. So if it, preaching without applications is the preaching of a dead gospel. So that's the first thing. The second thing is when we go out soul winning, we run into people all the time who, who – go to these liberal non-denom churches that just that just preach the gospel you know i i like to say churches who only preach first principle don't even do that right because that we think they think that they are saved because they're good people who repented of their sins but they never actually hear real preaching against sin uh they or they don't know if they're going to heaven because they, they, oh, well, that's God's decision based off of my works. I mean, we run into these people all the time, okay? I'll stand, I'll stand on this pulpit, if, well, if it would hold me. Uh, by the way, <laughs> my, 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 my 100-pound wife eats like three times as much as I do. So the glutton thing is a bad argument against fundamentalists, okay? <laughs> now that we got that out of the way. But you've so, gotta you've gotta admit that there are a whole lot of independent fundamental Baptist pastors that preach against homosexuality, but you can find them at the buffet line with grease dripping off their beard when they're devouring fifteen pounds of fried chicken after they preach on Sunday. That that is a now. legitimate that hey, is a legitimate wait. charge. Tony Hudson has a post where he's talking about Lester Roloff didn't live one day longer drinking his carrot juice than I do eating a steak and bacon and drinking my coffee as stout as can be and proud of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but he, he works on he works on a farm, though. He's a hardworking man. So, I mean, let's put that in context. But, I'll give him that. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. So, anyway, but that being said, though, uh, we were talking about that, about that. I mean, they're, okay, so we have to rightly divide. Okay, so salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, okay? Yeah. But not every believer is going to be a disciple because not, so many of these people who believed didn't really come back to get involved, and not every tree is going to bear fruit. But that being said, so, okay, so I'm not going to teach moral law to someone who's not saved and is not sealed by the Holy Ghost because they don't, they can't understand it because it's spiritually discerned. Okay. So, and I'll, and I'm not going to teach the deep mysteries to someone who does to a baby Christian who doesn't understand the moral law. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we have to rightly divide the difference between moral law and ritual law, because Jesus said that he didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. These old ritual laws were a foretelling of Jesus' first coming and, of course, his second coming to come. Now, the moral laws were not done away with because, as we see, that lust is now because lust is now the, uh, the sin of adultery, that now supporting the sodomite agenda, as it says in Romans 132. Uh, even though it's even though it's not a legal thing, and Christians can't execute people like the priests of the Old Testament did, Romans one thirty two says that they are deserving of that the allies are deserving of death, just like the people who do these things. Uh, there, there, there's 
the, the sin of hating your brother is the same as the sin of murder in the, in the Old Testament. Now, we, we don't have the enforcement measures like they did in the Old Testament, but you have to rightly divide the difference between ritual law and moral law. And so many people get off on the IFB preachers about talking about the, the women in dresses. Okay, so I'm going to address that. It is an abomination for a man to wear that which pertaineth to a woman and a woman to wear that which pertaineth to a man. Everybody may have a different interpretation of that, but that's Bible. You can't knock somebody for believing it and trying to find a way to be biblically faithful in that. Now, speaking of that, you know, in the Middle East, men wore robes at that time. Why, why are you not wearing a robe? Well, they were, they were Jesus didn't wear pants. Riches. They wore robes with britches, and, and that's the thing. It's all going to differ. Chapter between, and verse. Uh, it, ta- it, it, it describes the priest of the garments. I'm sorry, the garments of the priest. Uh, so anyway, but that being said, now the, the, the attire will change between cultures. I mean, Apostle Paul even talked about this, about being all things to all men that he might save some. I mean, that okay, doesn't Okay, make- so, so, if, so if the American culture, it's acceptable for women to wear pants, then why are we going to go back to an Old Testament Levitical law that was specifically written to Jews, and it also says that it's an abomination for men to wear mixed fabrics? Okay, like you so- have mixed fabrics on right now, but you've never preached on that verse, but you'll preach okay. on a- women wearing so, pants. I don't... Pr- I really would like to stand up at the pulpit and preach bridges for men, uh, bridges for men, pants for women. I don't have a chapter and verse. I'm sorry, but there are things I do have chapters and verses on Isaiah 40, Isaiah 47, one through three defines nakedness as having your thigh exposed. So you need to cover your thigh. Uh, And also just to go further than that, uh, it's not just cover it with the attire of a harlot, which is form-fitting jeans, because you're still revealing the form of the thigh. If you have holes in them, you're still revealing the thigh. You're supposed to adorn yourselves in modesty. And that's, that is that is Bible. I do have Bible for that. And also, the mixed fabric thing is really easy to understand, because if you put something through a washing machine that are things, it says that the mixed fabrics are woven together. If I wear a silk tie with a cotton shirt, that's not a mixed, that's not a mixed garment because it's not woven together. But the thing is, these different materials age differently. These different, these different. Let me ask you this. How do you handle a bird nest? How do I handle a bird nest? Is that important uh, for Christians today in America? Uh, it, it depends because on the bird because no 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 listen because the exact same chapter the exact Mm -hmm. same chapter you're talking about in deuteronomy talks about how to handle a bird nest but no ifb guys are preaching on that it also because it's their beards yeah well it's written to the jews it's a different context it's a different age it's 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 hilarious to me that people are preaching things out of a chapter and leaving things leaving other things out i mean it's are we really bible believing if if we're not preaching part of it how to handle a bird nest is going to change with different technology and such but the 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 principles of moral law are going to stay the same Uh, a man should uh, 
God created men and he created women. There are, two, there are only two genders, and you should be able to tell. Like uh, Paul told the Corinthians that nature itself testifies that it's a shame unto a man uh, to have long hair or for a woman to have short hair. I mean, we don't need some woman walking around like cue ball, Demi Moore, something like that. We don't need that. God tells us what nature testifies. It doesn't say culture. It says nature. Now, things will differ between cultures. It's like, you know, my Bible says, he who hath no sword, let him sell his cloak and, and buy one. Uh, your, your daggers and your swords are outdated weapons technology. So you need to have a gun now. It, because a sword is an outdated weapons technology. Now, but also I want to point out something that, that's going to give you goosebumps. Jesus said that two is enough. So that means that, when, that if you have one gun, that's not enough. But he doesn't say three guns are too many. So Jesus wants you to have more, at least two guns. <laughs> All right, man. That'll preach, especially in an IFB church. Hi, <laughs> <Hey>, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so I said the first reason we and I said I, but this I didn't come up with these on my own. This is us. We uh, sure. we come up with these reasons why we are not fundamentalists. One was focus, and I don't think you really answered, gave me a good answer to that. Although you talked for a really long time, but <laughs> I, I believe that the focus of independent Baptist churches is more about standards and performance than it is about the gospel. But I'll move on to number two. There's a big lack of love in what I saw in the independent fundamental Baptist world, meaning that Jesus said the defining mark of my disciples is their love for one another. Yeah. I've seen more fighting in independent fundamental Baptist church between fundamental Baptist camps that are against each other, preaching against each other, splits in independent fundamental Baptist churches, and the lack of love between disciples testifies, or people that claim to be disciples, testifies to the fact that they're missing something. And when the pastor, the leader is standing in the pulpit, yelling and screaming and blood veins popping out of his forehead, angry at everybody else's sin, but never talks about his own sin, there's a big lack of love. And I've got an issue with that. And that's why I'm not still sitting on an independent Baptist pew. Is that a fair accusation that there's a big lack of love in the independent fundamental Baptist movement? Uh, I think that's a fair assessment, and that's probably something that we have to really be on guard for. Now, with do the you want to change that? Look, like, do um, you feel like there could be reform in that area that you could like? Because you you sense that, and so since you sense that, I mean, we we all know that's real. Us three really believe that's real, and you sense that. Do you, is that a desire to keep going down that? Because that's the way we've always done it. That's the old time religion. That's the old path. And I want to stay with that. Or, or do you feel a desire to bring change to that? It's, it's a, that's a difficult proposition because you don't want to fall away into ecumenism. Uh, and also, and there are some things where you really need to take a stand on doctrine. I mean, if you think that the plan of salvation changes in the tribulation from faith alone, to you're saved by supporting Israel. That's damnable. That that's not her, Not all heresy is damnable heresy. It's I like to say you know. Uh, a I don't see what that. What? How does that have anything to do with the lack of love? I mean, that's that's you're well, you're that's, avoiding the question. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I I was just getting. I was trying to show examples of things that are worth fighting over. Okay, <laughs> I, I I see what you're saying about that. It, difficult proposition because i mean there are some things that are worth fighting for now well, let me ask you this let me ask you this you're you're preaching a sermon and a homosexual walks in and sits 
in the chair in your church? First of all, are you going to kick them out? I mean, they're yeah. obvious homosexuals. You're going to kick them out. You're not going yeah, to tell absolutely. them about. You're not going to tell them about the love of Jesus that can set them free from their sin. Because if they don't hear it from you, where are they going to hear it? Yeah, have, I mean, we have children here. That, no. Well, they're not. I've had homosexuals come to my church. They came to watch their their brother get baptized, who became a Christian, and he's praying. For, for his homosexual sister, and she brought her partner to church, and we had the opportunity to preach the gospel that, yes, sin is sin, but Jesus loves sinners, and he came to die for sinners, and he came to set heterosexuals free from their sin. He came to set homosexuals free from their sin, and you can find freedom in Christ. Would you not preach the gospel to anyone? So, so Nathan, before you answer that, Paul said, that he was the chief mm. of sinners. Chief among sinners. He really so here, was. He so thought he here, was. Um, I'm not sure. I think breathing out threatenings and cursings and leading um, rallies and genocide to martyr, against Christians. Right. Yeah, that's a little bit worse uh, I think that's pretty serious. But so yeah. he, here's my question, though. If, if the gospel was given to the chief of sinners from Jesus, how can we withhold the gospel from any of those who would definitely be beneath or below the chief in their level of sin? Well, okay. So first off, to put things in context, uh, Paul, Paul did those things in ignorance. He was not a reprobate. Uh, he did those things in ignorance. It, it, was his, it was a combination of zeal and ignorance. Second off, I do believe he was speaking from a position of humility and in uh, and, and a position of repentance that comes from spiritual growth, uh, because I'm really I'm really weary of that term repentance because people don't know how to rightly divide that term and get off into works-based salvation. But that being said, uh, so in the case of Apostle Paul, though, you have to keep in mind who was living at his time. Nero was living at his time. Nero was far worse than Apostle Paul, so we know that wasn't a literal statement. But then again, the difference is Nero was a reprobate uh, who was doing those things, because, doing those things knowingly evil because he had already been, given, gone past the point of no return, I believe. Whereas in the case of Apostle Paul, he was doing those things out of ignorance. And again, th this is something I want to stress here. There's a difference. Okay, so church is a called out assembly. Inside the church is for discipling saved people. Soul winning is for outside the church. If you try to confuse those things, you're going to mess people up spiritually and intellectually. Uh, so, do you, so, but that, so do you go to a gay pride parade and soul win? When I go out into the community, if I see like one of those equal rights decals or rainbow thing, I'll still knock on the door because I don't know if they're an ally. I don't know if there's a child in there being hurt by the reprobates. I don't know if it's someone who's just extremely confused. And they're not at that point where I think it's verse 25, where it turns into verse 26 in Romans 1. I don't know if they're at that point yet. Uh, so it's sort of one of those issues where I can't really say. Let me, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question this way, Nathan. If, if you work with a guy and this guy is a young college guy, he's a heterosexual, he's not a Christian, 
wasn't raised in a Christian home, doesn't believe in Jesus. Y'all have some conversations about theology and different things, and you get to share the gospel with him. And you come to find out that this dude is on Tinder, and he's swiping left, swiping right. He slept with 27 girls this month because people are literally doing that now. Like, it's a hookup app. He's on Tinder. He's heterosexual. He slept with 20 girls this month, 20 different girls this month. Would you invite him to church to come hear the gospel? I would give him the gospel at work. If he came to your church, would you kick him out because you're concerned that he's going to do something to one of these kids in your church? Or is that a special category for homosexuals? Mm. There's no difference in sexual sin. It's just as egregious against God. There is a difference because it's natural affection versus unnatural affection. Uh, Natural affection for 30 different women? That's not natural. That's, that's, that's an abomination against God created man, one man for one woman for one lifetime. Well, and when we go outside of marriage and we have multiple affairs, multiple before marriage, fornication, pornea, that, that, you know, if we can even take it back to guys who are watching porn all the time, no one's right. going to go meet people at the back door of the church and say, Hey bro, you're not coming to independent Baptist church. If you've watched porn this, this week. Okay, so first off, I want to zero in on something. Uh, there's, there's a difference between a natural desire and an unnatural desire. And sodomy is an unnatural desire. And Is it sin? Now, they're both a, it, fornication and whoremongering are, is an abomination. But it's not an unnatural affection, unfortunately, because think of it this way. Uh, okay, we're all married men here, right? I get what you're saying, but... We, we all still struggle with lustful thoughts i mean we've all been we've all been in line at the subway or the walmart and there's some there's some hoochie mama and daisy dukes and we all and we're and we're having to sit there and 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 stare at bubble gum like an idiot because because we we don't want to look you would see, you tell her would you tell her about jesus oh i would definitely tell her about jesus i would tell the whoremonger about jesus. would you tell her she's a hoochie mama I was just speaking off the cuff. Come on now. <laughs> I know, but I mean, when we see people, we categorize people as being worse sinners than we are. And I would have to agree with the Apostle Paul. I'm the chief of sinners. So yeah. I can't look at someone else and say, your sin is worse than mine. Let me fix you. You're a hoochie mama. I'm wearing a suit and a tie, so I'm better than you. And that's what they hear. And, and I'm not going to get into my whole life story, but let me just point, let me just say this. If I hadn't gotten saved when I was six years old, I would have been a reprobate, okay? I mean, the fact that I was sealed by the Holy Ghost when I was living as a backslider for the world, the fact that I was sealed by the Holy Ghost when I got saved at six years old, you know, having grown up in a Christian home but rejecting it uh, and re- in, in my young adulthood, I would have been given over to a reprobate mind. Okay, so I want to get that out of the way. And I have a very, I don't expect much out of non-believers because they don't have the Holy Ghost in them. I'm harder on believers than I am unbelievers. Now, as far, now, again, I want to stress this. I do, I am very weary of the idea of filling a church with non-believers because whenever you preach discipleship sermons to non-believers, you can really mess those people up. So Nathan, if I can just interject very quickly. So one of the fundamental differences I had with fundamentalism and one of the 
premier changes that took place in my heart. You just referred to a building as the church. You said, we're not going to fill a church, speaking of brick and mortar, up with a bunch of sinners. Yeah, and I would. <laughs> the house of God. The house of God. Okay. The church but the okay. church but the church auditorium is not the house of god peter actually, preached in, actually, if you look at if you look at what paul told timothy uh when he when he told him he wrote the letter uh to teach him how he should behave in the house of god that was obviously referring to uh the building where the church which is the called out assembly which is the local new testament church meets that's that's what he was talking about. The house of God. Okay, so the temple of God is the born again believer in Christ, who the who the Holy Ghost dwells in. The house of God is the building or the room or or the, the even the picnic table where the called out assembly meets. Uh, the church is the local New Testament church of uh, this called out assembly of believers that gathers together, and the body of Christ is all believers everywhere and the bride of Christ is going is not going to exist until the marriage supper in the end times. So then so then going back to what I was saying when Peter okay. preached he said that God doesn't dwell in a building made with hands. That's pretty straightforward and and I mean we could get into some some particulars on the text that you read just, a, or you quoted just a moment ago regarding Paul's words, but you're referring to a building as the church where mm -hmm. the new Testament language would be people. You're right. The assembly is the church believers leave the assembly and they remain the temple or the house of God because God dwells in them. So when we are actively living that out, we're going to have an impact on sinners regardless of our location. And if we're not the light of the world, then sinners have no hope of seeing that light. Um, I'm just, you know, your language about the church building, you know, really concerns me because. And I should have said the church auditorium. You know, it's 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 the building where the church meets. Just to be clear, I mean, and and I and I think we're getting into semantical issues here because because you know how is the church auditorium the house of God? It's because the Holy Ghost that lives inside the born again believer uh, in in the in the called out assembly, the church that meets in the auditorium. It's the house of God because God's there when these when two or more are gathered. It's not that. It's not that complicated to understand. Let me move on to the third reason why we're not fundamentalists. The sure. third reason is because of pride. I think there's a lot of pride in the fundamentalist movement, especially talking about preacher celebrities, the whole idea of us versus them, like believers are better than people in the world. No, we're just sinners saved by grace. We right. There's this whole idea of, you've called lost people reprobates over and over and over again, and I know not that's biblical. People. I know that's biblical language, but I also realize that there's this mentality within the IFB world that we're better than them. So there, this, this whole thing about showmanship in the pulpit instead of expository preaching, revivalism instead of discipleship, emotionalism instead of gospel content, 
separatism rather than culture engagement, elitism rather than unity, tradition rather than biblical truth. These are all things that lead to pride. And I think it's disgusting to sinners when they encounter us and they see it as a cult because we're speaking down against them rather than saying, hey, we're all sinners who need the grace of God. God loves you. God wants to change your life. So specifically, okay, so just to reiterate the question, it's specifically that y'all are not fundamentalists because you believe that uh, fundamentalists view ourselves as superior to lost people. And other Christian people. Okay. Yeah, so, I can't tell you how many sermons I've sat through where you preach against the Pentecostal church down the road and you spent more time talking, not you specifically, but the preacher spent more time talking about the the Pentecostal group down the road than he did about preaching the gospel, which is well, a problem for me because that's based in pride. It's why I'm better than everybody. We talk about legalism because here's legalism. You set up one tent with independent fundamental Baptist and the tent next to it with church of God, and they're going to preach against each other because they're not doing it the exact same way that they teach that it should be done. That's legalism. Well, you know, I grew up hearing, you know, that Southern Baptists were the worst. Mm -hmm. um, I can Me remember too. sermons against Southern Baptists where, yeah. you know, to the point that I, you know, I shared it on the podcast in, in tears, you know, that I stood in my grandparents' living room and treated them so wrongly because they were listening to Charles Stanley because they were homebound. And, you know, I just came out mm -hmm. like a raging bull against them on that. Okay, so uh, first off, I'm going to respond to the Charles Stanley thing. Uh, I think Charles Stanley's a good man who does his best to be faithful. Uh, I, I, I don't agree with him being in the convention or, nor using the NASB. And I do think that his compromise on Bible translation, on Bible versions, his compromise with going back into the convention and, and trying to save that which was rotten uh, has led to the apostasy of his son. Now, that being said, I can't even tell you how many times I've been out soul winning. I've been in the stores talking to people about Jesus. I've been in workplaces where they start talking to me about the Haggy or they start talking to me about Stanley or they start talking to me about the Osteen or the or the Copeland, and I'm surprised that I don't have teeth like a meth head because I don't bite my tongue because I need my tongue. But, oh, man, it's so hard not to say anything. So I can appreciate what you're saying there. And I think, I think the reason that we get into preaching so hard against other camps is because we don't we look at, I use the Charles Stanley example, we look at what happened there. I mean, we look at what happened with, say, going back into the convention and, and the problems that came with the, the, the churches that I've served that were in the convention that used to be IFB. And there were all kinds of problems uh, as far as fellowship that happened there. And, and also, they, they, they changed on Bible versions, and you know what? I'm going to go ahead and name a name because I just feel like it. All right, so Indian Rocks Baptist Church, down about an hour south of here, the head pastor was the youth pastor for Adrian Rogers, who was a great preacher, okay? He was the leader of that conservative resurgence. 
I remember at that church, every single week, they played this Carrie Jones song where, you know, they, they stand there and they're like hugging the microphone, getting all close like that, kind of holding their chest, those sensual whispers, singing to Jesus, supposedly, I want to uh, lay at your feet, put my head, lay my head against your chest and feel your heartbeat. What kind of blasphemous trash is that, that you're going to talk about the, the creator and savior of the world and talk about and sing them some kind of sensual romance ballad? That's disgusting. So was it disgusting when John was leaning over on him when Jesus served the Last Supper? It didn't, it didn't describe it like that. Is it they, disgusting when a pastor waxes a shaft of an arrow at a youth conference in front yes. of hundreds of teens? Uh, okay, referred to about 40 minutes ago in this conversation when I said pedophiles should be executed. And yeah, there were all kinds of warning signs there that there <laughs> were all kinds that. of warning signs. <laughs> hey, we agree on something. That yes. could have been heated. Yeah. Well, you know, there's so much that you've said that I would love to to dive into. Um, one thing I would love to ask you because you just, you know, you brought it up again when you were talking about Charles Stanley and his choice of Bible translation. Um, how is it you preach the King James Bible as a doctrinal issue when there isn't a single verse about that in the entire Bible? God never endorsed any language translation, certainly not any English speaking translation, being that English wasn't even spoken at that time. Yeah. So how is it that you hold the King James Version as a doctrinal issue when there isn't a single verse anywhere in the Bible? And don't go to Psalms because <laughs> God's language was not that he would preserve his words as if he were speaking about English, but it was that he would preserve the poor. When that, when that text is correctly... No, the, Lord, the words of the Lord are pure words. So I'm in, he'll preserve them forever. Okay, so that being said, also, he'll if, if you the poor forever. go there, let's go ahead to uh, Peter. Uh, we're born again, uh, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, and that is the word of God. All right. I was, I was saved under somebody preaching out of a chick tract, okay? And that is <laughs> seed. All right, so let's get on to the next thing. I never felt anything reading the modern perversion that I could understand. I never felt anything sitting under preaching under out of modern perversions. Even when I didn't understand the King James, bless God, I felt the King James. Is the standard for truth what you feel? Uh, the Bible, uh, Paul told the Corinthians that uh, that that. That the, full, that the things of God are foolishness of the natural man because they're spiritually discerned. So obviously you're going to feel something, but I can talk about facts on that. I'm not just going by feeling. Okay. Well, you said it twice on here about you feel it with the King James Version. If, if you're going to base if you're going to base everything on the King, I love the King James Version, but the King James onlyism is is a totally. If different somebody, thing. you said you were safe from a chick track. If somebody is, I don't use King James. So all those folks that have been saved under my ministry, are they truly born again because they were saved under a perversion? 
Okay, so I mean, it, it's a difficult issue. It's like if you went through the Romans Road, you know, hypothetically, if func if 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 it's functionally said, if it's functionally saying the same thing, that's fine. But if you get into stuff like uh, straight is the gate and difficult is the way, that's works-based salvation. There, there are other verses like that 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 go there. So I mean, it's I, I don't I'm not one of those that thinks you have to only be saved through the reading of the King James, I think that's sort of a ridiculous position, but I do believe that it functionally has to say the same thing in those verses that God used to lead you, because the Bible says we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, and that's the word of God. But I want to explain the facts of why to be King James only. I was going to ask you, am I a true Christian pastor if I'm preaching out of a perversion. Answer honestly. I preach out of the ESV, which I think is a very good. And I will make your brain explode like you said. I use the message. <laughs> Just kidding. I use <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I love that moment right there. <laughs> uh, but seriously, I, I really want you to answer that question. Nathan. Answer that honestly. I don't, I don't want to say anything ugly, but I will say this. You're not you're not doing yourselves, and you're not doing your people any favors. There's not a single verse in the Bible about an English translation, and what we have to believe at this moment is the Anglican men who believed in infant baptism and a lot of other things proves my who point. Ref who referred to King James as the bright and the morning star in their opening um, preface. We have to believe that somehow those men were completely inspired by God. And yet, here's, here's what I will say. How wrong is it that God's word was preserved in an English-speaking translation and God didn't say anything about it anywhere in the 66 books to point us in that direction so that we wouldn't commit the grave sin of not using it. Well, if you go to the book of Blues Brothers, uh, chapter 17, verse 69, it says the Lord works in mysterious ways. And, uh, and I mean, what it, what it means of preservation, the fact that the whole world today speaks English uh, tells me, and, and again, this is a matter of faith, uh, because I believe the Bible and that, and that God promised to preserve his word. I just got back from a missions trip in Nepal, and I can guarantee you the whole world does not speak English. Well, see, and I want to call out something else, too. You just said God promised to preserve his word. Where? Uh, Psalm 12. No, he promised to preserve the poor. It says that the words of the Lord are pure words that he preserved. Right. Right. And, no, and no, no, he, no, Nathan, he was talking about the poor and he was saying his word would be true. You could count on his word. He would preserve the poor. You, it said, you need to look at the tense in that text. This, this is, this is indisputable. And the only people who exegete this text in, in a different way are independent fundamental Baptists who have the agenda of proving the 1611 to be the only inspired word of God. That and somehow, we all believe, we all believe that God does and will preserve his word amen. forever. But where did he say he would do that in one translation? 
when this was written, the word, the Bible that Jesus had was in different scrolls. It wasn't compiled into one bound book like we have now. It was multiple different manuscripts, multiple different scrolls. And when we force everything into our modern understanding of one version is all it has. I love what MacArthur says. We have an embarrassment of riches, an embarrassment of treasures when it comes to manuscripts, when it comes to translations, when it comes to uh, fragments. We have more than anyone has ever had in history, and we're fighting a, about mm. one translation in God one language. God's not the author of confusion. Is Acts 8.37 Bible, or is it not Bible? Look, the King James translators undermined their own doctrine by putting out a Bible that proves my point and undermines and disproves their point and their pet doctrines as Puritans, as high church Anglicans, etc. So that's, that, that's what I stand on. And again, it's a matter of faith. And, and, I, and, and again, there's a, mis, there's a big misunderstanding. The King James's formal equivalence. And, when, and, and look, if, if Jesus or the apostles were quote, okay, if the disciples were quoting, uh, the, uh, the the Hebrew text in Aramaic that would have been an inspired translation. Uh, whenever the the Hebrew was transferred over to Greek, uh, thus uh, you know as it is written, that's an inspired translation. Formal equivalence can be inspired translation. I'm not I'm, I'm not your. I don't believe in using a numerological argument to defend my King James only position. So I'm not in the same. So I'm not bound by having to reject the Textus Receptus or what, or the Mesoratic texts. Okay. So I do have one question. Would your hat be more honest if it said KJV 1769? Of course it is, but it wouldn't make you as angry. <laughs> it doesn't make me angry. <laughs> I love that and answer. the truth will set you free. <laughs> but no, hey, it look, doesn't. I'm honest about it. I go out of my way. I go out of my way to say 1611 because it just, I know that there are certain people that just gets under their craw. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're not, with that right there, you're not helping the fact that there are a lot of people on Twitter that think you're a Saturday Night Live stand-up comic. Like, you're not real. You're, you're, you're fake. You know, I think this, this episode will prove you're a smart man. You, you know what you believe and why you believe it, and, you know, you're, you're standing on that. And so, I, I mean – here, here, you're hey, not I've fake. Got, yeah, I've got a question for you, Nathan. How do you feel yeah. about IFB sermon clips uh, using your clips? How do you feel about that? Uh, Honestly. It, it, I will say this. It, it's, it's extremely cowardly and gutter snipish because <laughs> I mean, this basement-dwelling backbiter is sitting in his in his boyfriend's basement <laughs> editing his voice like he's on unsolved mysteries you know spilling mob secrets i mean oh what my gosh. I mean, okay, and, and by contrast i'm one of these people who i mean we're supposed to shout it from the rooftops yeah. i have preached 10 sermons in my entire life and i had been put on ice uh, for years because I was at the center of a big scandal within the convention and I still put my sermons online and I try as I was trying to work through timidity and work out a preaching style and 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 all these 
reprobates and all these backsliders <laughs> and all these bitter feminists are projecting their imaginary childhood <laughs> onto me uh, as if as if I'm like a combination of Ted Bundy, uh, <laughs> Peter Buckman, Mao Zedong. I mean, it, but it's laughable. I mean, I sit around and laugh. One of the brothers in our church, him and I sit around and make jokes about these people all the time, okay? I mean, it's hilarious. So, but, so, but here's the... Said, now, I mean, does it annoy me that it's up there? I will <laughs> say this. If there's something wrong with my preaching, uh, get on and critique it in the same way I put my name and my face out there and offer point counterpoints. That's the first thing. The second thing about it is just from a practical aspect, it's really messing up our Google search results. <laughs> <laughs> hey. It's completely wrecked our algorithms. It's a mess. Well, Nathan, <laughs> I can't believe you just offered that argument. That's really cool, actually. Um, but here, here's the thing. Stop and think about this. Would people know about you if it weren't for IFB preacher clips in the way that they do? I don't think they would. That's the only reason I'd ever heard your name. You literally have a cult following, man. People love you. I'm going to tell you, this episode right here will possibly be the largest episode that we will have because there's so many people from IFB preacher clips that have heard just some of the craziness that you say in your sermons, and they're going to listen to this thing. A minute ago, you referred to IFB Preacher Clips as a backbiter. And by the way, I just want to go ahead and say this one more time. I am not IFB Preacher Clips. I'm so tired of being accused of that. <laughs> I have at this point offered to swear on the original manuscripts, on my children's souls and everything else. But how can you refer to him as a backbiter when he only uses your words? Like this one right here, for example. This, if, if you, you preach this... And then he retweeted it. Tell me how this doesn't gain attention. Uh, it says in this text to have a spirit of meekness and fear. That means you don't be a jerk to get enmity with God. The gospel's offensive enough. You know, so you can't be like these, uh, these liberal hipster Calvinists that the Southern Baptists and the Presbyterian <laughs> Church in America are popping out. You know, that just want to go tell everybody, God loves me. God hates you. Boo, 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 boo. Don't work like that. That's false doctrine right there. Amen. What? <laughs> oh, my goodness. By the way, the punching and all that, and then the, the elbow, man, while that was being played, that was the best. That was so, a classic. So talk about that, that, little, that little brief blurb that we were able to hear. Why are the neo-Calvinists so obsessed with their perversion of Romans 9? Uh, Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? Uh, is the whole point. It's like they're more obsessed with the process of election than they are the actual work uh, of the gospel, the work of an evangelist, and the transforming power of the gospel. But just beyond that, if you actually look at... Uh, it, what is being referenced in Genesis, it's talking about nations, it, because Jacob, J Esau never served Jacob. In fact, Jacob labored for 20 years uh, and said, I am your servant, Esau. This is all yours uh, to preserve his life. And Esau was actually a pretty nice guy. 
The only big things that you can find fault with him over is that he is that he got sick. He thought he was dying, and he gave and he gave his brother the inheritance for a cup of soup, and and then he and then he went off and married a bunch of Canaanite women. I mean, he actually seemed like a pretty nice guy. And the Bible says the Bible says that he sought repentance and tears and never found it. So God obviously rejected him. So I mean, is God did God get it wrong? Well, he sought repentance and never found it. Uh, that's one of those difficult sayings. I'd have to look it up. I mean, I haven't really thought about it that thoroughly, but at the same time, I will say this. You can't really find many texts. I don't know if he saw, I don't know if he saw was a saved man or not. That's a difficult question that it's not really clear on. It doesn't look good for him because he's a type of the world. But that, but that being said, if you actually look at who the cursed people were, uh, Esau seemed to be a pretty good guy who God blessed in his lifetime. It was the nation of Esau that was really the descendants of Esau that were really the cursed people. And also uh, the, 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 the descendants of Canaan were a cursed people. If you go back to the account of Noah and his sons. So the fact that Ishmael married a Canaanite and then Esau married a Canaanite and an Ishmaelite, which was a, you know, a quarter Egyptian, a quarter Syrian, uh, Abrahamic and half Cain and half Canaanite, I guess. I, well, actually, I, it was it was it the daughter of Ishmael or granddaughter? I don't remember. I'm sorry, but anyway, uh, where I'm going with this is it's it's really it's one of those things where they re the Calvinists really abuse Romans nine. Okay, <laughs> they really do. Well, okay, I'm, I'm wondering if God couldn't get past Esau's hair problem. I mean, think what 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 does it mean if you're known for being covered in red hair to the point that you know, you can put animal skin on your arm to fake you're that guy. Man, that dude must have had some major body odor. I'm just, I'm just putting that out there. I always well, you might have actually smelled better because, because all that, all that, all that body hair would soak up the moisture. Whereas the, whereas uh, the effeminate <laughs> Jacob, uh, he he was <laughs> baby's behind, and there was nothing to soak up that desert sweat. Well, but, uh, I shaved, I shaved I my like arms. This. I shaved my arms, and Nathan looks like he's got Don King in a headlock, and I smell a lot better than him. I can guarantee you that much. So. <laughs> okay, yeah, I have no idea what you just said for the last three minutes. I'm kind of lost. I'm sorry, but what I, I what I do want to ask is, we played that clip, and I love it. But I think, and and I just need to know, do you plan this stuff, or is this just spur of the moment, like you because? There's got to be either in your brain, you're thinking, what can I say in this moment to get a clip? Because somebody's going to listen to this sermon, and they're going to find a clip in there. Or does it just come to you naturally? Like going just, in a sermon. I'm naturally kind of a quirky person. Couldn't I mean, <laughs> I will say, and, you know, uh, in, those, in those early sermons when we were still in the, in the boardroom, in the conference room. Hey, Nathan, you, you've, said, you've, said early, you've said early sermons a couple times. How long ago was that? Well, that was that was uh, back last year. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and, and you have to keep in mind our our church. We're having our one. We're having our one year anniversary on June thirtieth. Okay. I mean, but it, but there was a lot that changed between when we uh, wrapped up at, in Tarpon Springs and moved up here because I completely changed my sermon prep. I completely changed the way I structured sermons. Uh, I, I stopped using nine-page 
outlines and went to like little one page of scribbled bullet points. And also it was kind of a blessing for my delivery that I had that knee issue because uh, I wound up having to uh, get on a little stool behind the pulpit and I got a little more energy and unction, you know, I mean, but that being said, I'm just kind of a quirky person with a sense of humor. Uh, that's kind of how stuff like that happens. I guarantee you, I guarantee you uh, a, a little Barney the Dinosaur song was not in that nine-page outline. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I have, I, have a, I have a request for you, Nathan. Sure. Could you, could you possibly work in the van down by the river sketch into one of your sermons? <laughs> I I've heard people say that. What is that? <laughs> My name's Matt Foley. I'm 37 years old. I am divorced, and I live in a van down by the river. <laughs> Thank you. Just I'll look it up. On, look it up on YouTube. It's hilarious. It's a Saturday night live, not live sketch. It's it's hilarious. And then my second question: We send all of our guests a recovering fundamentalist T-shirt. Would you preach in a recovering fundamentalist podcast T-shirt? I I wouldn't even preach in a polo shirt. But I will say this. <laughs> I would preach in it underneath my white shirt. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Ah, that would be really cool. Hey, can we play a game? Well, we've got to close this up and wrap this up. Let's but could, do it. We, could we play a game real quick with you? Uh, Brian, sure. JC, I want you guys to join in with this. I want to say like uh, uh, a short word or name something, and you give us a one-word answer of what you think about these things. Okay? Yeah. For, for example, I say King James 1611. Hey, man. So let's do this. Um, John MacArthur. Pompous jackass who thinks you can take the mark of the beast and be saved. Okay, that's more than one word, but we'll take it. <laughs> Kanye West. False prophet on drugs? MLK Day. Straight out of hell, false prophet. Beth Moore. Being a woman preacher is heresy. Damnable heresy is what comes out of her mouth. Andy Stanley. Dad should have whooped some doctrine into him. NIV. Positive. Thotomites. Uh, preaching in jeans, a flannel shirt, and flip-flops. God never called the people of Portland to preach. <laughs> Hipster. Young, you're restless and reformed. Liberty University. Jerry Falwell fell away from the old-time religion. <laughs> All right, I've got one more. Paul Kidd, Phil Kidd's son, who's nothing like his dad. I'm glad I don't approve of his direction, but I'm glad his dad still loves him. I got, I got one more. Contemporary Christian music. Babylonian, sensual, carnal, erotic, uh, strange chords, effeminate, weird. Well, for all <laughs> of those genres, you can go to jradio.com. Jradio.com is one of our sponsors here of the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. We are so thankful that they sponsor the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. They have a genre like you can I don't know if any of those genres are on there, but Effeminate is Brian Edwards' favorite, and it is on there, and you can find it today by going to jradio.com. Nathan, I don't know how to end this, man. I'm not going to lie to you. This is the <clears> longest <throat> interview we have ever done. I was just going to say I, I want to say you, you have thick skin, and I appreciate you coming on here and, and handling our questions respectfully. 
again, I used to be an evangelical who was dumb enough to get a tattoo because nobody ever preached the devil out of me. Oh, my <laughs> God. Well, what hey. is your tattoo? <laughs> it was... Uh, a rebel flag. I got a cross. Okay. Oh, that's and a, and a Confederate flag. <clears throat> there I knew it. There I it knew is. it. So, so, so um, Nathan, you are crazy funny, man. Yeah. And I'll tell you another thing, too. I used to be in a lot of meetings with Tony Hudson. Um, you're far more intelligent than he is. Um, he wouldn't have been able to have this conversation and describe things like you did. Mad props to you for coming on the show, and I respect that. And I do think you're intelligent, and I do think you're, uh, it's admirable that you will have conversations with people that you disagree with. But I honestly, from the bottom of my heart, want to plead with you to seriously pray and look at the movement that you're mixed up with because it's dangerous, man. And that's just a warning from a brother that has been and seen the darkest of the IFB movement. And I'm not saying that everything is evil in it. I think there's a lot of good churches, good pastors, but just from one brother to another, be careful, man. You got to focus on the gospel and stay away from all the peripheral things. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I certainly appreciate your candor in giving that opinion. And, uh, you know, hey, on the bright side, as my Bible college president told me, uh, being down here in Tampa Bay, I'm literally like an island down here. So, I mean, <laughs> if I am a part of if I am a part of movement, I mean, it's it's only theoretically because I'm like probably to ten hour drive from it. Okay. Taking it at face value, you saw an ugly side of uh, fundamentalism that I didn't see. But then on the flip side, I saw an ugly side of evangelicalism uh, and had to come out into fundamentalism. And, and I've reached out to other people like you who have had similar stories. I still believe in my doctrinal truths and my practices and everything in the old-time religion. But th there probably is something there that fundamentalists could work on to prevent a falling away. I feel what you're saying because my, I don't want to get into too many details. My path was paved and I lost everything to stood, to stand where J. Frank Norris stood a hundred years ago and defend the fundamentals of the faith. And that's how I ended up here. Right. Well, and I think J. Frank Norris was cut out of a different block of wood than modern day fundamentalist. I do too. I agree. Well, Nathan, we thank you for coming on tonight, man. All right. Take care, gentlemen. All right. Guys. Thank you, sir. Thanks for All listening right. to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. We'll see you next time. Be sweet. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Be sure to stop by our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give us a follow. Also, go to our website, recoveringfundamentalist.org. That's recoveringfundamentalist.org. There you can find Recovering Fundamentalist swag. You can get your t-shirts and hats. You can join our ex-fundy community. See where we're going to be having some meetups. It's the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Be sure to join us next time for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast.